theological appetizer for what we're about to cover when we talk about the grace of God and wanting him above anything else that he might give us. Thank you, Joshua. Really appreciate you. Hey, before we get a running start into our message, I just want to make sure we greet all those who are with us this morning. I want to greet everybody. Good morning, Gospel Hope and First Baptist, if any of you are in here. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, also, I just want to greet any of you that are visitors or you are, you are a special guest with us this morning. If you would just kind of throw your hand up. We won't make a spectacle of you, but I do want to show you some love. Good morning. Praise God for you. I hope that you had a chance to receive a little special gift that we have for you. If you, if you came in um, um, and stopped by the Connect table, please, we have something we want to give you. If you didn't get a chance to go by that, it'll still be open once you leave. We want to uh, get that to you as well. Also, we want to just kind of park the bus for a moment and allow our little ones to get off and go to their special time of discipleship. So uh, for our third through fifth graders, this is a great time for you to, to head on over. First through third, I don't want to stack, you, stack them too quickly, but first through third, you can make your way there. And of course, I'll give them just a little bit more running room, babies, to pre-K. <laughs> I love how we have just been trained, whether it be through all the graduations we've attended or whatever else we do, like when you call groups of people, like you got to applaud for them as they exit. Uh, no, that's awesome. Don't stop. I'm just saying it's part of our training. Um, well, great stuff. Uh, as you've already heard, we're kicking off a brand new series from the book of Galatians uh, entitled Free. And so we're going to unpack this in just a moment, but I want to go before the Lord and ask for his help. We need it desperately more desperately than we know. Father, in the name of Jesus, I come and I thank you and I praise you for the opportunity to preach your word. I thank you, Lord God, for the gift. I thank you for the, uh, the access to, Lord God, all the materials that make it possible to craft messages. I thank you for education. I thank you for all of the graces, oh God, that trickle down that make this moment possible. But above all things, I thank you, Lord God, that you have designated the moment of preaching uh, uh, amongst the gathering of your people as a special time that if we will do it in your name, you will come and be in our midst. And that we would have access to a unique expression of your presence, oh God, that is not available otherwise. There's something special you do when your people gather around your word. Lord God, would you allow us to experience the fullness of that, whatever it is that you choose to do. I am always reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul when he said he came in amongst the Corinthians and claimed to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified so that people's faith would not rest in his oratory ability, but more so in a demonstration of your spirit. Lord God, would you let there be a demonstration of your spirit today? Let there be a, a moment in the message in every heart, Lord God, where it becomes so incredibly obvious that you are here and that you are speaking to us that we would not be able to shake what you are saying. We would be compelled to a place of obedience, a place of repentance, or whatever it is that your spirit is impressing upon us in that moment. Lord God, would you allow us to experience exactly what your word says about itself, that is good for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we would be thoroughly furnished for every good work. Will you allow those evidences and that we would, Lord God, allow those evidences to not only roll out in the lives of those who are listening, but also, Lord God, into me, the person who is speaking. Allow it to happen, oh God, even in the virtual audience, those who could not make it or those who 
don't want to make it because they are suffering from some kind of church hurt or some sort of unique thing that allows them or causes them to live comfortably at distance uh, from the local fellowship. Would you, Lord, allow there to even be a deposit for their lives as well? This we pray in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning, we'll just be preaching uh, just from the first five uh, verses of the book of Galatians there in chapter one. I'd like to read them for us kind of slowly with some special emphasis if I can. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches, plural, of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. How many of us have seen the movie Finding Nemo? Anybody here seen Finding Nemo? Yeah, good, good. Much much larger participation in that movie here at this service than in the previous service. The folks at Disney Pixar blessed us with Finding Nemo in 2003. And many of us probably know, either by watching it ourselves or with our children, uh, kind of the nuances, right? So Nemo is this little fish who's got kind of a, one of his fins is a, a little bit disabled. And uh, some, as a pretext for the movie, something obviously tragic happened to Nemo's mom. And so Marlon, the father, has been hyper-conscious about Nemo's safety. And so he builds all of these structures and these standards and these, these, these rules of engagement to try to help Nemo remain safe and hopefully that nothing will happen to him. And so as we watch the movie unfold and the meeting with Dory and Bruce the big shark and the turtle who takes us on the, you know, all that different stuff, if you're familiar with the movie, all this different action is happening and it's enjoyable to the heart. But there is a meta-narrative. And believe it or not, it's this. It's not about finding a fish. It's not about how to escape from a tank. It's not about swimming too closely to the surface. It really, the meta-narrative is about trust. It is about trusting the son. The, the, the meta-narrative is that Marlon, the dad, needed to learn to trust the son rather than trying to trust in the strength of all the rules and the structures and the strategies that he put in place to try to keep his son safe. Now, I believe that the book of Galatians is not some sequel to Finding Nemo, but I do believe that in it, it calls us to do something else I would call by way of our title, Finding Zero. Finding Zero. That is, ground zero for the believer, getting back to basics, is one where we are also called to trust the Son. To trust the Son for freedom and liberty, to trust the Son and God's work through him for the unique grace and enablement that only God can provide that gives us freedom from all things that bind us. You see, the book of Galatians, uh, a primary contribution to the New Testament is it gives us really the, the, the quintessential view of the unique relationship between grace and the law and why grace matters and why it is superior to the law. Now, you might be saying, well, man, this sounds super theologically heady. You may not refer to it as grace and law, but, but every day in our lives, we are in a fight and in a struggle to fully appreciate God's grace versus the law. Why? Because just like Marlon, Nemo's dad, we are a people who appreciate structure, strategy, systems, morality, and standards to help us feel like we've done all the things that we need to do to be in great relationship with God. 
You cannot miss. The, 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 the Galatian saints, the, the occasion that made it necessary for Paul to write this letter is that they have begun to experience something that I believe is very real today, and that is gospel drift. They heard the gospel, they came to know God through the gospel in his unique grace, but then there are others who have creeped in from the outside, Judaizers in particular, who have told them that in order to really have a great game with God, to really please God, to really be in great relationship with him, if you really want to be a Christian, if you really want to be the real deal, you need to build for yourself some safety nets, some structures, some strategies. You need to start thinking about getting circumcised. You need to follow certain rules and laws. You need to have certain traditions. You need to follow certain feasts and festivals. You need to worry about your dietary. And so they, they built in all of these complicated structures to try to help them become more authentic. And let's be honest with you. Even though you and I may not fall for the okey-doke in terms of someone giving us new rules, the bookshelves are littered with all kinds of materials about helping us to get better and to be a better version of ourselves, to maximize our potential. We call it self-help. They don't even call it self-help no more because that's become a dirty word. But let's just be honest. All of the quotes from social media, everything is about these, these little nuances. They're like little chips off the gospel or little derivatives of the gospel if you can trace them back properly, or, or at least they try to be. They're little substitutes for the gospel. Everybody is always trying to find a way to refine their game, to live my best life now, to become my best person now, to be the best possible kind of me. There's all of this language and vocabulary that saturates our society about trying to help us Build a system for a better life and future. We're no different from the Galatians and the fact that our society is saturated with alternatives from getting back to ground zero, the real thing that produces freedom in our lives. And so Paul's argument throughout the book and the rest of the time that we'll spend together is exactly this, teaching them how to get back to ground zero. And what I find to be compelling about Paul's work here in the book of Galatians or the Holy Spirit's work through the pen of Paul is how he comes out the gate swinging in just the first five verses in a very interesting and phenomenal way. In the first five verses of the book, there are two very clear and explicit mentions of the pillars of the gospel. Typically, many of the gospel writers, they, they, they have a little bit of a buildup in their greeting. It's like, tell such and such, I say hello, and you know, I'm so glad you got a church meeting at your house, and got to know that I've been praying for y'all, and I love y'all, I can't wait to see you. Nah. Paul comes out the gates mentioning the gospel explicitly in what we would call five verses. Why does he start so hot and heavy with the gospel on the front half of the book? Well, because I believe that he wants them to see that no matter what they may be thinking about, that the gospel is primary, the gospel is fundamental, that the gospel is necessary. It's not ancillary. It's not a necessary. It's not a luxury. It's not an add-on. It's not a, a nice piece. It's not just a composition of a, an initial set of axioms to be accepted in the scriptures, but it is ground zero. Now, I know in our culture, ground zero has become synonymous with what happened on 9-11, but ground zero has definition prior to the, the, the tragedy of 9-11. Ground zero is actually just the genesis or the starting point, the power point where something happens. Like if a nuclear bomb goes off, where it strikes is ground zero and that big mushroom cloud, that's, not, that, that, that's part of it, but the ground zero is where it strikes. The gospel is ground zero in a believer's life, and I believe that the emphasis of today's text is to get all of us to get back to ground zero. I built up quite a bit of momentum. Who said that? Who said that? Amen? I appreciate that. Thank you, brother. I, I've noticed something administratively in our, in our congregation. We use the, 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 the captions. Does anybody here in this uh, particular service need the captioning? Do you need that? 
If you need it, raise your hand. If you don't, I'm going to ask the team to turn it off because I don't want anybody to get sucked into trying to follow me on that. Are we good? Is that a good call? All right, good. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm messing up, let me know. Send me an email. Uh, so when we talk about finding zero, finding zero, I believe that the gospel should always be our ground zero. And rather than Paul just telling us that the gospel should always be our ground zero, I believe he starts out showing us how the gospel is his ground zero. First and foremost, hear these words, and this is all the picture that I'm trying to paint throughout this message, is that we need to trust the Son and not our own strength. There is a unique liberty that comes from trusting the Son rather than living in the bondage that comes from trying to trust my own abilities. Now, there are two major ideas that I believe that Paul begins with very early to help us in this. The two big ideas are, are as follows. Paul shows in the first two verses and then in the second three verses that his authority is grounded in the gospel. You'll see that on your screen. And that his primary argument is also grounded in the gospel. Paul's authority is grounded in the gospel and that his corresponding and following or subsequent argument is also grounded in the gospel. Why does Paul work so early to begin creating this gospel grounding? Here's why I believe he does so. We all have a natural tendency, that's myself included, have a natural tendency to give authority, to give authority to those who have the greatest proximity to us, who's closest, right? Who's closest, who's in our ear the most. This is what was happening in the Galatian church. There were those who were constantly in their ears about what they needed to do in order to please and have great relationship with God. Those who have greatest proximity, those who have the greatest popularity, those who have the greatest personality, the largest personalities, the biggest platforms, the best podcasts, the, the, the juiciest and most robust social media platforms, and above all things, those who have the perspectives that already align with some of our innate prejudices. It's very easy for us to forfeit authority to those voices in our lives. And so Paul opens this letter by immediately reclaiming where the authoritative voices that speak into your life should come from, should come from him as the apostle. And then he says, listen, yeah, I want you to listen to me as an apostle, but not because I won a popularity contest. My apostleship is not the product of a group of people by committee saying, Paul's got the man, he's the, he's the dude, he's got it. No, he says, my apostleship is not from men or through men. In other words, they are not the ones sending me, and they are not the ones who have authorized me. It is actually God the Father and Jesus Christ whom he raised from the dead. Now, these are fundamental pillars in understanding the role that apostleship plays. If I could just be a nerd for a moment, there are four fundamental things that shaped the lives and the credentials of apostles in the first century. Number one, they were handpicked by the Savior. They were handpicked by the Savior. Even Paul was handpicked on the Damascus Road. Apostles were handpicked by the Savior. Even posthumously or post-resurrectionally, um, those who had to fill the office of apostle were handpicked by the work of the Spirit. Number two, their handwritten letters made up the corpus of the New Testament. Handpicked by the Savior, and their handwritten letters made up the substance of the Bible, the stuff that we read. Number three, they had first-hand witnesses. They were first-hand eyewitnesses of the resurrected Lord in physical form. Even the Apostle Paul, one who was known as born out of time, met the Lord in person on the Damascus Road. Number four, they had unabridged, unabbreviated, unfettered authority over the whole body of Christ, 
not just a cluster or a handful of churches, not just the ones that they were most familiar with, not just the ones that they happened to start on a particular missionary journey. Those are the four fundamental historic precepts that shape the lives of those who bear the distinction of an apostle. So the apostle Paul comes in and says, listen, I'm an apostle, not from men, not through men. Why is it necessary to drill down on that? Because there was and is today a temptation, again, to give license and authority to those who have the biggest platforms, the best gifts, and the brightest personalities. Even today, even today, and I don't speak this from a position of insecurity by any stretch of the imagination, we will allow all kinds of people to speak into their lives because they have mastered marketing or because they have the greatest number of likes and follows. You go to YouTube and it's like, man, this thing is viral. There must be something in here for me. Well, that same, that same algorithm existed in the first century. And so Paul says, no, let me, let me help you understand. I don't care how much proximity, how big the personalities, and how robust the gift, and I don't care how often you see them and how great their platforms, the, the, the authority with which I'm speaking to you from comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Acts starts this way, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Uh, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, right? So hand chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. So right, firsthand witnesses of his resurrection, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. One of the first fundamental priorities of, ha- of being a disciple, not necessarily, or being an apostle, not self-appointed, not one who just has great speech. But then Paul goes further, says, not from men or through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Jesus Christ and God the Father. So here it is in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 through 17. When does the Apostle Paul meet this criteria? Here it is in his iconic moment. The Apostle Paul, up until Acts chapter 9, had spent his entire life studying the movements and the work of Jesus' ministry as an outsider, looking at it with a view toward trying to destroy it and to undermine it. So he was hearing the messages, he understood the precepts, and that's what he was positioning himself to destroy. And then that same trajectory of following all that Jesus had taught, the original criteria for all apostles, that same material, he's been studying it with a dubious intent of tearing it down. He's been studying it and following it, and then he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road. And in his sovereign genius... The Lord says, I will now use you to serve me. And so then he sends him, and then hear the words when he sends them to Ananias. But the Lord said to him, because Ananias says, Jesus, are you sure this is the guy you chose? Because this guy has been trying to kill us. And so here it is, Paul in this moment has just met the criteria of an apostle because he has been a witness of the the work of Jesus from start to finish, and then he is now on the Damascus road, been a witness of him in resurrected form. And then he says, but the Lord said to him, go, he is a what? Chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, the kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him much he must suffer for, my, for the sake of my name. And so Ananias departed, entered into the house, laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, 
The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on Damascus Road by which you came, has sent me to say, or sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Apostle Paul is just saying, I'm just trying to share with you what Paul means by the fact that his apostleship did not come by way of committee. He, even though he seems to be a late addition to the team, it didn't come because a group of people said, man, that boy Paul kind of nice with it, ain't he? Ain't he nasty with the text? Let's get him on the team. Let's see if he want to play with us. That's not the criteria. And of course, being raised from the dead. Why is that so paramount? Jesus told all of his disciples, apostles in particular, you'll wait in Jerusalem and you will receive power and you will become witnesses to me. Well, witnesses of what? The whole gamut, but in particular of his death, burial, and resurrection. In other words, Paul understands that his role and his call is to be a witness of the finished work. Not just a few miracles, not just water to wine, not just hot and spicy teaching, but he is a witness of the death, burial, and resurrection. Therefore, it appears twice in the text in the preamble of the book. Before he even gets in the greedy, he has mentioned the gospel twice. That's why. Because Paul's authority is grounded in the gospel. Well, you may be saying to yourself, Pastor Rod, based on the criteria you've laid out, none of us plan on auditioning for the role of apostle, so why does this matter? Well, it matters because we need to use the following as a litmus test for who we allow to speak authoritatively into our lives. The people we allow to speak into our lives should be teaching from the gospel and, capital A and D, also increasing our tethering to the gospel. Like, this is the net effect that those who I allow to speak into my lives. And again, I am not trying to campaign for my own cause. Go to any church in town you want to, but would you please ask yourself at the end of every message and every book and every podcast, has my heart been further tethered to the gospel so I don't drift? And is this person teaching me from the gospel? That is our job, to get you more deeply rooted. Why? Ephesians answers this question more carefully than I can and more gracefully than I can. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14, and he gave the apostles, talking about Jesus, what he gave to the church, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, that's me and Ryan, right, to equip all pastors in town, all pastors, not just us, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son to mature manhood. What is the expiration date on that function? That's like a death till death do us part. Until we attain to, to mature man and womanhood and to the unity of knowledge of Christ to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, this is a full-time job with no end date until the Lord comes. So that we may, oh, this is the, this is the good part so that we may no longer be children. Look at the imagery, close your eyes real quick and just let me say it to you. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Even if you didn't close your eyes, some of you did, and I love you, brother. I saw you with the green shirt. You did it. But listen to this. Think about what I've seen... I've seen your vacation photos. What happens to a child? What happens to a child 
even just a, I mean, just a moment as they get in a, a, a place where they can float. Because of the lightness of their body and because they have no, their feet can't touch the, the, the ground, even for us, if we get deep enough, we're easily swept away. We're at the behest of the wind and of the waves. And so the Bible characterizes children, those who are not yet grounded in the gospel, not fully mature, who don't have the weight, don't have the maturity, but the, who are going to be tossed to and fro. This is a picture of not just you. This is a picture of me. This is me when my feet don't touch the ground, when I'm not working with ground zero from the gospel. I am susceptible to the waves and the wind that get my faith off course. This is why we all need to be grounded in the gospel, and the authorities to which we give ourselves need to be further tethering us to the gospel or in some way more deeply teaching us the gospel. Second big idea that I believe that the Apostle Paul is putting forward in this particular passage comes from verses 3 through 5. Look at this, though. I don't want you to miss it. It's such, such beautiful exegetical nuances. Uh, in, in these first five verses, the Apostle Paul mentions the Father and the Son in tandem twice. Uh, you know, he, he talks about the work of the Father and Son and the cross. And then he says to the churches of Galatia. This is written to all of the churches because he recognized that this wind of gospel drift has been sweeping through the region. He says, grace and peace, this is important, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So the grace and peace that he extends isn't coming from Paul, it's coming from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how is it coming from them? Well, because he's an apostle, that's kind of his job. But listen to what he says. Grace and peace to you from God the Father, or from, from, from yeah, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. So another gospel glimpse. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil world according to the will of God, our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. I believe here's the big argument that Paul is premising on the gospel, and that is this, that our salvation, that the gospel is by his grace and peace, but it ultimately ends up for his glory. Do you see that? Just kind of naturally laid out there. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself, and then you kind of fast forward down, to whom be the glory forever and ever. This is his premise. Why would he need to argue like this? Why do, what is he setting the stage for that will be further unpacked in the subsequent chapters? What he's setting the stage for is this. There are people in your ear telling you that there's other stuff that you need to do, that you need to work for this. And when you get to work for something, you get to boast about its completion and its, com and its progress. Do we not? This is why Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 says the following, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down uh, uh, well, with his own flesh the dividing wall of hostility between both Jew and Gentile and between God and us. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 through 9 say this, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. God specifically, intentionally, and strategically engineered the gospel and salvation in such a way that anyone who is saved will never be able to roll up in heaven with their nicest suit and say, ha, I'm here with my fan club. Salvation is engineered so that the only one who gets glory for the completed work is him. So that no one could boast. It is a gift. 
Like we'll look to our left and our right, we'll see Moses, we'll see Abraham, we'll see Joseph, we'll see David, and we will not feel like peons or peasants in their presence because we all got there by grace. And so his argument is this, but why is that necessary to tell the Galatian church and then by extension, why us? It's necessary because the Galatians were being infected by this call to do things that would make them more robust or that would make them more authentic Christians. In other words, if you follow these things, now I have a measuring rod by which I can compete with other would-be believers and say, now I am somehow now more worthy of God's peace. I am now more worthy of God's grace. I am now a top-tier, top-shelf Christian based on my accomplishments and my achievements. Now you may be saying, well, Pastor Rod, this is old hat. Is it? Because I, I, the moment that I drift from the gospel, can also believe, can begin to believe in my own Americanized way that what gets me a seat on the front pew with a little brassy plaque with my name on it is how much I gave work. What qualifies me to say certain things and to do certain things is what time I showed up and how many weeds I chopped on the campus beautification day. Work. When I, when I drive off, when my, you know, my brow is, is, is sweating, and I'm like, well, Lord, I preached hard today. Certainly I'm due for some kind of blessing. Work. Because we culturally are a people who prize ingenuity and work ethic and stick and putting your head down and putting your wheel to the shoulder and all those other cliches that characterize the great American work ethic, it is impossible for that not to creep up in your theology. And therefore, we must be constantly reacquainted with the beauty of grace. I believe that the Apostle Paul would, based on the premise, principles that I read to you from the book of Ephesians, would craft an argument something like this concerning God's grace and the completed work on the cross. If the grace and peace that you, that you have, that have come from the Father and Christ, if they've come from the Father and Christ, then who else are you trying to get it from? Or where else are you trying to get it from? Where else am I trying to get grace and peace from if it is Jesus Christ himself who has become my peace? If it is the Father who has given grace, where else am I trying to get grace from? It becomes nonsensical. I believe the second premise of Paul's argument would look something like this. If Christ gave himself, what else could I possibly give to please the Father? I believe a third leg of his argument might read like this. If we've been delivered by that work, that is the completed work of the cross, what other work needs to be done? You ever had a group of friends invite you over to, to the house to help move, and you kind of intentionally got there late? The truck was loaded, and everybody was just having beer and pizza, and you come in with your little work gloves on, hey, there ain't no work to, work to be done. Only thing you can do is pat the truck on the side and watch it leave. When you get to ground zero, you recognize that there is no work for you to do to achieve your salvation if you really understand that the work has really been completed. It is of the will of the Father. And if this great gifted salvation is the will of the Father, then who else should I be compelled to please? I believe that these would be the great arguments of Paul from the groundwork of the gospel. I believe this is the point that I would make to us that this, all these things have for us in light of all these theological underpinnings. I believe that we must regularly fight the temptation to find grace and peace in our own strength. 
We are like Marlon from Finding Nemo. We will effectively let our own fears and anxieties move us to a place of trying to create our own structures for trying to find grace and peace in this life if we're not careful to always get back to trusting the Son and His work. The gospel is unique in its provision of liberty or freedom, if you will. I'd say that um, the, the, the gospel is the great get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, what is it making me free from? I believe that the gospel is making me free from the bondage of belief that I can morally gain God's approval. I believe that the gospel frees me from the emotional guilt that comes with my sin. When I've really gotten to ground zero, when I've really handed my life over to Christ, and I really believe the unique forgiveness and the corresponding cleansing that comes from Jesus Christ, when I do that, the emotional guilt that I try to carry, that is just me working to bring in guilt. But that ain't God putting guilt on me. It frees me from the emotional guilt that I would forge on myself. It frees me from the intellectual odyssey of trying to create enough morality to think that I am somehow gaining ground with God and that all I have to do is follow a couple of precepts and principles and I'll be, I'll be okay and I can stand before the Almighty God. It frees me from the frustration that I can imagine of a hopeless future because I just, no matter what I try to do now, it never seems like I'm fully ready for the future and all that this world would throw at me. It frees me from the memory of my past sin and while it may not bring about guilt, it does bring about paralysis because I'm afraid to walk into those same areas again. It frees me from a will that is absolutely powerless in being able to master certain things in my life because that's what the liberty is for. The power of God in Christ frees us from the power of sin that grips the life. This is part of the great victory of the gospel. I think about the people who I encountered in my many years of being on the front lines in the American marketplace as I would share the gospel, and their retort would always be, well, man, I'm not a fill-in-the-blank, because everybody's always got a nasty academy of people that they believe don't qualify for heaven, and they'll just be like, well, I'm not a whatever, and I'm not going to put anything in that blank because some of them might be you. <laughs> you. You wouldn't believe what people on my job would say about y'all. You know, at least I'm not this. I only do this. I love how they try to minimize the blank. But, but, but what's interesting about that, and one of the arguments that I would say is this, and I'll share it with you. Um, if you were a parent and you lived next door to a house, and in that house that you lived next door to, there was a group of kids there, and they were kind and they were friendly and they were obedient to you, if you ask them to leave your dog alone and to not pull up your flowers and to stay away from your fence and not kick your, their ball in your yard, they did it. They were obedient. Does their consistent obedience suddenly make them your child? Mm-mm. No more so does consistent morality make us God's children. Now, now, the children who live in the house, who indeed belong to that family, when they obey that parent... Their obedience is not only just following rules, it has a much more dynamic effect because now it frees the hand of the father to be able to bless those children in ways so that he can further advertise the benefit of what it means to belong to him and to be a part of that house. And when his children obey, there is a level of benefit that the outsider's obedience will never be able to win them because they are his unique children. Therein is the freedom of the gospel. 
It's not a get-out-of-jail-free get card to live in licentiousness or to just do whatever you want to do. It is a compelling call because we're not, working to, we're not working for our salvation. We're working from it. Or as the Bible would put it, for we are his, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So all of this hubbub about good works in the Bible, you might be saying, well, wait a minute, that just seems negligible, Pastor Rod, if obedience don't mean anything. No, it means everything. It means a whole lot. It's a part of our evangelism. It's a part of our disciple-making. It's a part of our worship. It's a part of the compelling evidence that, Lord, I appreciate what you did for me at the cross in your completed work. And so... We got to get back to ground zero. Anybody here ever uh, get a chance to make it up to Washington, D.C. before they close the museum? The museum? Anybody ever been to the museum? Yeah, you know they closed it. It was a shame before God. That was a good place. I love the museum. Went to it three times. Loved it. And I hate museums. So if I went back three times, you know, that was, that was all right. But one of the great exhibits that I loved about the museum is that they had an entire section dedicated to Ground Zero, the one that we know. And uh, while I had been to Ground Zero, the actual place in New York City, by the time I got there, they had cleaned it up. I mean, it was still a, a hole in the ground, and, and there was some construction cones there about. But, 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 but when I went to the museum in Washington, D.C., the actual relics, like the antenna from one of the Twin Towers, an actual airplane engine, Seats from an aircraft, shoes from a bomber, uh, cell phones that rang for days as families were trying to call their lost ones to find them. All of these things, and I was just standing there, and I was gripped by it because I was looking at the ground zero. I was looking at the stuff of it. And I believe that when we get back to ground zero, when I regularly focus not just on the genteel, lovey-dovey aspects of the Gospels, by all means, savor and soak in the love of God, but also look at the clash and the calamity and how Jesus Christ was crushed on our behalf and how he was victoriously raised in victory over sin, death, and the devil, placing his feet on the head of Satan. Get back to ground zero. You need to see the relics of the gospel to be endued with fresh encouragement and power to live righteously for God. Getting to ground zero historically and contemporarily in that museum, it changed my view of that event. I was a grown man when 9-11 went down. I was, not, I was 27 years old. I was standing in my office facing a file cabinet, and this girl named Tamika on my left said, Rod, I believe somebody hit a building with a plane. I was like, girl, hush and get back to doing payroll. And she was like, no, I'm dead serious. And I was like, you need to stay off the Internet. And I went over to her computer, and I looked at it, and I was like, whew, that does look bad. Third shift about to come in. Hey. <laughs> But then, all those events and, and, and after the soberness and the seriousness of what happened, it gripped me. It did. But nothing gripped me like going to see the actual relics of Ground Zero. And what I'm saying to you is, ladies and gentlemen, while you, you don't need to get on a plane and go to Jerusalem, that's not what I'm teeing up here. But what I am saying is get in your word and get back to Ground Zero on a regular basis. Never escape the underpinnings of the gospel, the particulars. See how Paul did it? This was not the Galatian church first time hearing. He had already been there and shared the gospel. That's how they came to be believers. This was not new information. And so let us not obsess over new and advanced and, and, uh, information 
as somehow a calling card that we're getting good information because it's new and it's fancy. No, let's get to ground zero to avoid gospel drift in our lives. That's all I'm asking, and I believe that's all the Apostle Paul is asking. So this is just a setup for our series. We're going to go in much greater depth in terms of the particulars of what it means to get to ground zero and all that it means to experience the beautiful liberty of the gospel over the bondage of the law. Can I pray for you? Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm thankful to you for every ounce of opportunity that you would give us to hear just those tender gems of the gospel. That, that, that fundamental, inescapable truth of you having died lovingly, substitutionarily, voluntarily and substitutionally. You did it voluntarily. Your life was not taken. You gave it. I thank you, Lord, that you died for us substitutionarily. You died in my place. You didn't die because you had done anything wrong. You died because we had done wrong. You died, Lord, necessarily because there was nothing else that could satisfy the wrath of God against humanity. And you died, Lord God, but you didn't stay, Lord Jesus. You were raised victoriously over sin, death, and the devil. You didn't sneak out the tomb, you came stomping out, achieving victory for your people and all who would place faith in you. Lord God, I pray for the person here today who has been believing that pleasing you is simply a function of being morally replete and that the Bible is just one among many books on the shelves of religion and that the unique uh, message of the gospel is nothing more than a tale. I pray that that person's heart is being newly and freshly tethered to the particulars of the gospel. I pray that that person's focus is being brought in to the very substitutionary and voluntary nature of your death and how necessary that sacrifice was in order to achieve our liberty and our freedom from sin. I pray that eyes are being opened to understand that sin is indeed bondage. It is impossible for us to escape. It is in us and it is on every side. Lord God, I pray where there is fresh understanding of the gospel or maybe brand new understanding of the gospel, I pray to that person, Lord God, wherever they are, would bow their head, even at here, here or at home, and ask you in their own way to come into their hearts and they would repent of their own systems and strategies and structures for trying to please you in their own strength. Free them, oh God, from, the, from their intellect, believing that they have to pray some special liturgical prayer. They just seem to simply need to repent, to turn toward you and from their own self-sufficiency. Lord God, I pray for the person who is experiencing gospel drift in their life. They believe in your word, but they're, they've grown to be codependent on every other wind of doctrine. And they're recognizing right now that that's drift. And they are they are re-resurrecting the Bible and putting it on the exclusive and proper shelf in the hearts of their lives as the place that they need to go for grace and peace. I also pray for, for the person, oh God, who in some circumstances of life has abandoned the local church, whether it be for hurt, be for pain, whether it be for pessimism, whether it be for lethargy or laziness, whether it be out of tradition, whether it be some other form of drift, Lord God, believing that they can sit at home and self-feed, they've absconded from the beautiful community that you built in your body. 
And as a result, Lord God, they may not have drifted today, but they are on the high road to drift because they're not connected to a community of accountability. I pray for that person, oh God, whether they be at home or in the pews, Lord God, that they would find a church and that they would fight to get back to ground zero and that they would hold their teachers accountable to either teaching from the gospel or making sure that they are more carefully tethered to the gospel. This is my earnest prayer in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's worship him for his completed work.